So I wrote this poem in response to the 2016 Synod. It's called CRC Synod 2016. Knees tucked tight under my chin, I find myself watching a spectacle more tedious than televised golf. Clearly, there was a handbook that I failed to review, or else the signposts have been intentionally disguised so as to ensure the SOS of the foreigner. I have my passport ready, my birth certificate with a detailed family lineage, and a plaqued certificate of CRC competence, just in case my confusion becomes cause to question my belonging. A docket of white men adorned with glasses and short-sleeved button-up uniformity speak spaciously about the need to affirm a motion to provide spiritual leaders with clearer guidelines on how to exclude me and to address my issues. As a call to clarity, some brandish Bibles causing the book to jitterbug before the delegates, as if it was to dance for its life tonight. This book provides all the answers we need with unbridled clarity, except when it doesn't, and exhaustive interpretation and illustration is necessary, a notion that is highly irrelevant to the current cause. Amongst the casual bashing and hell-speak tears and thoughtful warnings are spoken to the deep exhale of a thousand watching paint dry. To those tears, to those allies, I curtsy in a gay huzzah. Your tears kept the paint wet for a few moments more. But it would dry and dry the same, a putrid eggshell white, rainbow-free since 1973 and beyond. I weep because I wanted to write a different poem, one where do you take this man could blessedly christen my father's lips someday, a sacred oneness sealed with a once forbidden kiss. I weep knowing all too well that those 110 say eyes with biblical surety tipped the pill bottle into my sister's mouth to resounding applause. Some singing the tune, victory in Jesus. While others with dry mouth search for a song yet unwritten and too often sung. In my dreaming, I wonder what might have been if I was there to stare into their eyes, if I'd danced across the stage with a pride flag cape, if we'd arrived in hordes to circle the CFAC and pray hand in hand, the Holy Spirit has our swaying song, her mysterious moving turning hearts. Now, I pray patience and courage to write that unwritten song, to wear my cape with pride and to grasp those hands firmly till our bones ache and those grinding knuckles become a tinnitic drone in their ears. A reminder that we are here, we are queer, and we will not permit the domicide of our mother's house by hatred and fear. May the sustainer sustain us. May our anger be used for justice. May our sorrow peel away the paint and reveal the kingdom.
I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we gather friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. We've been on an extended break for the past while, so welcome back to myself and the team and to all of you who've been patiently waiting for new episodes. We are aiming to be back on your regular listening rotation a couple times a month in the new year, so please stay tuned. In the meantime, you've already heard a bit from our guest today, Eric Van Giesen, reciting a poem he wrote entitled CRC Synod 2016. So now I'll turn things over to ICS President Ron Kuypers to introduce Eric properly and get the conversation going. Hello and welcome to the Critical Faith Podcast. My name is Ron Kuypers. I'm the president of the Institute for Christian Studies and the director of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, which hosts the podcast. And today it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest, Eric Van Giesen. Um, Eric is uh, a PhD student in sociology at York University. And he has also done a master's degree in social justice and in community engagement from Wilfrid Laurier and his research focuses on the lived experience of queer religiosity. So we're really happy to welcome him to our podcast. And uh, thanks for uh, coming and giving us your time, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. It's a a privilege. So I kind of want to start just by maybe um, telling you a bit about my own background as a child of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, in Canada, as you are as well. I thought maybe if I can uh, share my narrative and then you can kind of respond with uh, what we might share and what's similar in our upbringing and how we were shaped and raised and, and what might be different. So yeah, so like I'm from Edmonton, Alberta originally, uh, born in 1969. So I kind of came of age in the 70s and 80s. And the Christian Forum Church was uh, quite a bit different back then. You know, there still wasn't, uh, what, women weren't allowed to be in office and that was a big kind of hot button issue. I grew up uh, third Christian Reformed Church, which had a really had a, had a long string of somewhat forward-looking pastors that I appreciated. So I, you know, I grew up in Edmonton in, in that kind of context. Uh, I went to the uh, separate Christian schools that were supported by the community all the way through, you know, grade one to grade twelve. I did spend some time at the University of Alberta, but I ended up getting my degree from the King's University in Edmonton. You know, the other kind of thing is that I think the teachers in my high school are really influenced by the curriculum development work being done at the Institute for Christian Studies back in the 70s and 80s. And I had a lot of friends, too, whose families were supporters of the Institute for Christian Studies. But I grew up in a really, really conservative Christian Reformed home. Like after I left home, I'm the youngest. Uh, my parents actually ended up joining the United Reformed Church. So it, it's kind of interesting in my family because I ended up going to the Institute for Christian Studies as a graduate student and um, studying and doing graduate degrees with some of the people that my parents held in really high suspicion, right? Um, So in my own home and family life, even though I kind of in some ways stayed within the Christian Reformed fold, there was a real deep tension. I just think that's kind of interesting, but um, I kind of wanted to share that with you to see if any of that kind of resonated with your experience growing up in the Christian Reformed Church. 
Yeah, so uh, I'm the son of a church planter, a Christian Reformed church planter. Um, my dad, Adrian Van Giesen, began his ministry in British Columbia, where I was born, and then moved to Acton, Ontario, and was a pastor at Acton CRC for two or three years, and then started his first church in Ajax Pickering Crossroads CRC, um, which was really sort of where most of my memories of church as a child are, are from. And uh, Crossroads was really uh, founded in the midst of the like seeker movement, if, you, if you're familiar with that language. So uh, that church started out of uh, a support group for parents who were looking for uh, community in raising children. And the church sort of emerged out of that group of people. Um, so I didn't have a, a typical Christian Reformed upbringing in the sense of sort of a long established church community with its own building um, and deacons and elders and et cetera, et cetera. There's a much more informal structure to the church. Um, so that was that was my church upbringing. And, and in Ajax Pickering, I went to Pickering Christian School all the way through. And then we moved to uh, Kitchener-Waterloo to start uh, my father's second church, which is called The Journey. And I switched to going to uh, Laurentian Christian for my grade eight and then went to Woodland uh, in Breslau, which was another Christian uh, high school for that time. And I would say for the most part uh, growing up, I was largely a very quiet and passive kid, but I was very involved in church, particularly on the worship team. I love to sing. My family has always loved to sing. And I was very involved in all of that stuff. So it was it was very much a part of my day to day life. That being said, my father was never was never very orthodox in his understanding of what church is. I think that's very common in church planter circles, but he was very passionate about the church needing to engage in the place and then the community that it's rooted in. And to be, uh, you know, one of his phrases was to make sure that if the church disappeared, that the city would notice. And that that uh, moved from things like getting involved in uh, refugee supports to um, one of my things that my dad was known for at the journey was leading these groups of volunteers who would go into little uh, subdivisions or, or strip malls and volunteer to clean small business bathrooms. And uh, when they would ask why, he would just say, just as a small way of saying Jesus loves you, like those sorts of things. So he was he was pretty radical in terms of what he thought the church was meant to be doing. Um, and then I went to Calvin College, now Calvin University, in part to step away from what I knew into something more. Calvin was the only university I applied for because I went to visit and I was blown away by the welcome that I experienced in terms of continuing to engage not just in like critical intellectual work, but also to engage uh, spirituality and faith in that discussion, which had been my experience up till then. And I was actively lamenting the idea of going to a secular university where that part of my life would be unwelcome or um, or at least strange to many people. And then also I loved uh, Calvin as a liberal arts university, um, which allowed me to sort of poke my hand into a bunch of different uh, disciplinary pots because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 18 and most of us don't. And that, that was a really exciting prospect for me. Um, and I, I ended up really, really loving Calvin. Um, had a really, really positive experience there. I got involved with the Creation Care Intentional Community floor my first year and was a part of a really close-knit group of students who were actively asking good questions about environmentalism and, and um, what it looked like to think about faith and the creation and our engagement with that. Um, I was a worship apprentice at Calvin for a year uh, and led worship in the chapel uh, two or three times a week and for Loft. 
Uh, and then I was a philosophy major, which um, largely, I think, was because of the professors and the program. I saw my father's ethos as well as an ethos that I wanted to embody in my own intellectual and spiritual life, which was this ability to be profoundly critical and in some ways fearless in our explorations of um, epistemology, ontology, et cetera, et cetera, while still holding on to spirituality and faith and, and this biblical narrative story without this constant uh, worry that somehow I was going to learn something that was going to tear my entire <laughs> worldview apart and I would show up tomorrow and be, be an atheist and move on. And I saw that very much in my upbringing, this fear of evolution, for instance, in my high school was a big one. And, and at Calvin through the creation care floor, and honestly, and this will maybe transition us to this conversation a little bit, um, at Calvin, and while I was there, this conversation has been happening for a long time, but there was a memo that was released that asked, if I recall, um, professors to sign on to not, I think the language was advocate for homosexuality in the classroom. Um, and it was a big deal at the time. I think this was something like 2009, 2010. And what I saw and what I experienced as a closeted queer student at Calvin was these towering intellectual figures, my professors, protesting this uh, memo um, and standing up for queer students who were out at Calvin and, uh, in my experience, queer students who were not out at Calvin, um, as well as just engaging in really critical discussion around sexuality and gender in the classroom in ways that was um, not dehumanizing, but was sort of dignifying of LGBTQ people. Um, and that demonstration of faithful discernment in relation to these topics was a profoundly impactful experience for me and continues to inform, I think, and influence my own exploration and, and reflection on these ideas. All of that to say, I'm deeply, deeply rooted in the Christian Reformed Church. I mean, we haven't even talked about that, but um, beyond my father, all of my mother's brothers are pastors in the Christian Reformed Church. My grandfather, Jim Cock, was a lead pastor at Eastern Avenue CRC in the midst of the civil rights movement um, and some of the difficult discussions that were happening there. And my grandfather on my father's side left the Christian Reformed Church over the decision to include women in ministry. <laughs> so there's a, a long history of both pastoral work, but also critical engagement with um, difficult social issues and the CRC. So there's some resonance and some differences, I think, with your story. Well, thank you for your willingness to share all that. I really appreciate hearing your story. I'm glad you mentioned that issue of the memo. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are colleagues at um, Calvin University. So I know that a lot of schools have struggled with that. The other thing is that um, I was at King's University and it was King's College at the time when they um, basically fired Delvin Green. But that was, of course, that became the kind of legal precedent in Canada for including discrimination against sexual orientation as a protected status in the, in the Canadian Human Rights Code. Now, it's very interesting to sort of see how our, all our institutions have and continue to kind of struggle with the division in the community on this subject, right? So um, I was really appreciated hearing that experience because, you know, we'll get into this a bit more later on, but uh, I think it's really important to think about the people in these communities who are not only the out LGBTQ plus persons, but the ones who aren't out because totally, yeah, because those are the people right now who I'm really thinking about and lamenting for because, you know, I know like not from personal experience, but from having heard stories, what the struggles of coming to terms with having a sexual orientation that is condemned by your community and um, struggling with that. Um, mm. And then what you hear from 
authorities and people you respect during that really vulnerable time must be huge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of where you're at with your own sense of self, whether you love yourself or hate yourself or all those kinds of things, right? Yeah, I should say too, just for some context, um, that simultaneously to those voices of of affirmation at at Calvin, um, my sister came out about five years before I did um, to my family, and um, and that did not go well. <laughs> um, her coming out was a profoundly difficult thing for my mother and father, particularly, and her coming out. And the reaction of my family very much put me back into the closet for quite a lot longer than I thought that I would be. And I spent uh, many years while at Calvin helping my parents to work through their own theological and um, spiritual journey in relation to LGBTQ realities, even while I was working through them on my own. Um, and it was, I think, particularly helpful to have those critical voices at Calvin advocating for me without them knowing they were advocating for me um, while I was advocating for myself and my sister within my family home. Thankfully, I mean, the the sort of positive part of that is that my father and, and my mother were both open to discussion about these things and to learning from me and from my sister about our own um, journeys, uh, but you're absolutely right that those those voices within these institutions are profoundly important for not just the the people that are out and trying to uh, stay, but the LGBTQ kids who are sitting in the pew listening to their parents debate these issues, or the LGBTQ adults who are too afraid to. Uh, it, sometimes it's afraid, but sometimes it's just concerned about the wide scale impacts on their sense of belonging, community, and home to share that part of themselves with with the people they love. Yeah, I came to ICS as a master's student in 1992, and it was just after a pretty infamous summer conference that they had on the idea of um, creation order in the Reformational tradition and uh, whether or not it is a roadblock to compassion. <laughs> the scriptures call to compassion. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, Two of my professors, Hank Hart and James Olthius, um, used that occasion to kind of come out as allies and question the church's stand on same-sex relationships. And that was quite controversial at the time. And I remember even at ICS, a lot of division when I came there as a student. But as someone who, even at that time, I saw myself as an ally of the LGBTQ community, or I wanted to be, it was really important for me to like uh, have professors like Hank Hart and Jim Oltheus who didn't sort of throw scripture away or say, ignore those six or seven verses, but just said, there's this other... Um, hermeneutic approach to scripture that takes it just as seriously sees it as a book of truth and a book of profound existential orientation and um something that gives you a vision for life that you can live out that doesn't preclude you from having an affirming position when it comes to same-sex relationships and people in the lgbtq plus community Uh, sylvia keysmat was also someone i got to know at that time because she became a professor of uh, biblical studies and brian walsh was there in the 90s and i've always really appreciated uh what they've been doing and their their takes on scripture so i think you've also had some um, you've taken some of their courses right out on the farm and what's interesting is i think that 
this reading of the Bible is not just a possible alternative one. It's a better Agreed. reading of Scripture. I don't know if you have any opinions, hermetic opinions on that way. But... I do. Yeah, I mean, I should I should preclude any opinions on that by saying that I'm I'm not a theologian. But I, so I had the chance while I was working for Generous Space Ministries in Toronto to audit several classes with Brian and Sylvia at Wycliffe College. And I mean, for one, the framework of uh, homemaking, homebreaking, homecoming, uh, as a reframe of the creation, fall, redemption worldview was a really helpful one for me. Um, and two, the the reframe of thinking of the Bible as a set of isolated books and chapters that can be um, individually used to argue for or against particular theological alignments um, and transitioning from that to understanding the biblical narrative as this larger, for sure, divine inspired, but also uh, literary whole has been a profoundly useful um, approach uh, for me to orient myself in relation to issues of justice, inclusion, belonging, uh, and, and discernment around a variety of controversial issues. Well, that gives me a good segue to sort of the second sort of set of question prompts we have here, which is does focus on the idea of home that you just mentioned. I wanted to just get um, like you just talk a bit more about how how you've experienced your upbringing in the Christian Reformed Church as a home for you, and how has it failed to be a home for you? Some of that I've shared already in terms of uh, just this sheer wealth of investment my story um, has uh, within the Christian Reformed Church, my family history, my own, like the amount of time that I've spent within Christian Reformed spaces with Christian Reformed people talking about Christian Reformed theology, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's certainly one component of it. I think, um, I think when I'm talking about the CRC as a home today, um, um, even as a, as a, as a home that's been broken for me, in some ways, what I'm talking about is the set of practices, the culture, the um, um, value system that still energizes who I understand myself to be uh, and still uh, actively um, plays a huge role in in my own life and decisions and and how I um, move through the world today. I mean, part of, part of it would be a, a, a very critical tradition, actually, an intellectual tradition that understands faith as not um, blind belief, but as as something that is unafraid of intellectual interrogation. Um, that is that's something that I take and 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 hold with me uh, as I move forward. But also, I think the the ways that I'm still rooted in that worldview mean that regardless of whether or not I participate in the Christian Reformed Church as an institution, it's still very much a part of my day-to-day life. Like, uh, it's still very much a part of who I understand myself to be, even if I wouldn't put that title on it anymore. And the home-breaking is really, I think, um, um, when I, when I um, was at Calvin, one of the, um, one of the profound theological shifts that I went through was seeing, um, I, I, I transitioned from seeing God as a, a divine being who dictated a set of rules and behaviors that I needed to follow to um, a God that is, and this was my transition to aesthetics, to a God that is beautiful and that is um, attractive and that draws us towards themselves in dynamic ways. And that 
God is not so interested in telling me what not to do so much as he is or they are in celebrating um, and inviting flourishing through attention to goodness, to beauty, to grace, to um, patience, to these fruits of the spirit that we, we you know, that we sort of root our, our value system in. And that there's space for me to err, there's space for me to to discern and make mistakes, even as I find myself in pursuit of the beauty of God and the beauty of what it means to be a Christ follower in my day-to-day life. And I, I tell that story because the homebreaking piece, I think, was this realization that the Christian Foreign Church as a denomination was far more interested in telling me whether I'm in or out of that community than they are in pursuing um, a good God who is invested in my flourishing. <laughs> um, and, and it was a series of repeated, both spoken and unspoken, pronouncements that I am broken and disordered in my sexuality and, and gender identity that disrupted my sense of home in the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, at least that was a huge uh, component of that disruption. And, and there came a point where my own positive and flourishing relationship with God required that I leave the CRC. And I knew that if I stayed and if I if I continued participating in these conversations, that that uh, the God that I uh, continue to be inspired by and to to be in love with and who I believe is in love with me and I believe who calls me beautiful um, would would die to me if I stayed in the Christian Reformed Church um, because of the people who claim to be his hands and feet in the world and yet diminish, deny, and demean my humanity and my createdness in the image of God. And and I was no, no longer interested in participating in a Christian practice that was oriented around shame for me. Thank you. That, no, that's, that's really a profound testimony, I think. Uh, I often think it's it, there are some interesting paradoxes in the in the Calvinist theology of the Christian Reformed Church because, you know, the, there there's a strong stand against works righteousness, but mm-hmm. so maybe there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but there's sure a lot you can do to damn yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. That's a thought that occurred to me today, and it's sort of because I'm I'm very sympathetic to um, the spiritual transformation you underwent at Calvin because I think I did something similar, maybe even before I got to ICS, but that was definitely what my supervisor Hendrik Hart was preaching was so that was. The, the scripture uh, narrative talks about a God of compassion, a God who loves the world and God mm-hmm. who wants to save the world and all of the world and all of the world is broken. Right. No one is particularly right. broken in a special way that's worse than exactly. all other people yeah. or all that kind of thing. Right. So it was much more holistic and then a much more life affirming. And that's where the tone is present of ICS in terms of all my messages to our supporters. I thought Calvinists have been beat up with this um, sovereign authoritarian God, you know, for quite a long time. And sovereignty is a huge theme in 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 the uh, in the theology of Calvinism, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the the way the Bible portrays power is very paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it talks about weakness and, and love being stronger than power and domination. And um, you know, and I think sometimes Calvinists don't um, uh, allow that to really deconstruct or in, infect their understanding of what it means to be sovereign. It means to give away power, not to hold power or wield power. And um, mm-hmm. and I think that that, could have, that has profound implications, not just for controversial issues like the one we're talking about today, but in terms of how we approach almost 
any of the sort of vexing social issues. It's about how do we remain faithful to a kerygma that talks about healing and transformation and flourishing, all the kinds of things you've been talking about. So I'm just kind of saying amen to yeah. <laughs> what yeah. you just shared. I mean, but. And I guess like if, in, in terms of full circle for this conversation around uh, sort of being rooted in the CRC, I think one of the blessings... And I'm using Christianese language, but one of the one of the uh, gifts that I was given early on uh, in my life was that my father, in in being a pastor of a seeker oriented church, had to strip back the gospel almost completely to its bare bones, uh, and had to like he wasn't the main message from a day to day. Uh, from a you know week to week um, conversation was really like what is the gospel about at its heart and and I have some like adult criticisms of of this phrase but I I, I often talk about the fact that my my dad would frequently from the pulpit repeat this phrase get that God is crazy about you and in that he was trying to um, communicate that us as as his creation and i would say more communally that his creation he's crazy they're crazy about their creation as a whole rather than in this individualistic uh, gospel understanding but um that that god doesn't just tolerate his creation but celebrates it and that 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 um there are parts of uh, our own creativity and our own um ways of being in the world that are uniquely celebrated by god this idea that there's sort of the book of, of scripture and the book of creation and that this creation that evolves and is changing and growing and is also co-creating this creation with God. And I think God celebrates that co-creation with us. And I think we do need to look back to the biblical narrative as a guide in terms of ethically discerning which directions we want to go and how to continue to lean into goodness and grace and, and compassion and we'll get to this in a second, but my work in my PhD is in some ways about disrupting this idea that, that church orthodoxy has been this static, unchanging thing throughout human history. Um, and that uh, religion, uh, just as much as all, all other aspects of the world and creation are changing and shifting and, and growing in different ways, even as we um, engage in discussions about sexuality and gender, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks. Why don't we go into that a little bit, your uh, your own research? Because uh, as I mentioned off the top, you have a master's degree in social justice and community engagement from Wilfrid Laurier University, and you're currently pursuing a PhD in sociology at York University. And uh, on your website, uh, you describe your research as focusing on the lived experience of queer religiosity. So maybe you could just unpack that uh, for us a bit, and uh, maybe also reflect on how your personal experience has shaped your research agenda. And uh, like you've already brought up the theme of creativity in relation to who we are before God. Uh, uh, and then I also think that helps explain the fact that uh, if you think a look at things like art therapy and stuff like that, that engaging in creative acts, acts and, and making things can be a very healing and redemptive act in itself too. And I think that's not an accident because if God is a creator and a redeemer, then if as we image that, we're going to experience then those kinds of benefits. But but let, yeah, let's hear a bit more about your research. It all sounds like super interesting. So. Sure. You'll have to cut me off if I go off too long because <laughs> I don't get asked about it that often. But um I think it's it's helpful to to start just by saying that uh, the, uh, all of my work is at least in some way autoethnographic, and the term that I use is community autoethnographic. So I'm interested in 
gathering a group of people with um, resonant experiences who can articulate a narrative that helps to understand those experiences. Uh, and so uh, my MA work, uh, my master's work in social justice and community engagement, um, basically took my own experience of navigating um, sexuality and religion or faith uh, which was which was largely navigated through poetry, through writing poetry. Uh, I used poetry during that time as a way to sit with paradox and tension um, and to uh, articulate things and in some ways hide things <laughs> um, that I needed to express that I couldn't put words to. And so I was curious at the time whether poetry, this this medium of that lends itself to non-dualism, to, to moving outside of what we know into something that is more experimental or playful, if other individuals had used that tool within their own navigation of sexuality and, and faith. So the project was called Queerly Faithful, and it was largely a gathering of a handful of queer folks to talk about experiences of identity, uh, faith identity and belonging in Christian faith communities through poetry. And so we wrote a bunch of poems together um, about these experiences within our particular faith communities, some of whom were from the Christian Reformed Church, some of whom were from outside of, of that. And the, the sort of takeaway from that research was that the majority of the literature and the discussion that was happening, even colloquially, stopped at integration. What I mean by that is, a lot of people and a lot of the research looks and says like, okay, there's these queer religious people and let's talk about their stories. Let's, let's look at their, what, how did they get there? And it, they'll go through this development process that says, well, they, they realize they're queer, that queerness is in tension with their religious life. They grew through this process of deconstruction or critical thinking where they interrogate their faith life in some way and they either step away from religion or they come to this place of integration where their faith life and their sexuality are in low longer intention and they move on. And that was kind of the end of the story in the literature. And what I have found in my own life in this project, this MA project that I did, and in my work in Generous Space, is that's just the beginning of the conversation. In my MA work, I talked about uh, synergy, um, which is really this starting point where when queer religious folks stop expending an incredible amount of energy defending their worthiness and defending their belonging, they actually get into this space where they can begin to creatively and playfully explore the ways that queerness and and religion or queerness and Christianity um, synergetically feed into and nourish one another. What does it look like for um, the non-dualistic thinking that comes with queerness, um, some of the resistance to norms that comes with queerness to inform and infuse Christianity in different ways, to talk, to inform the ways that we read scripture, to inform the practices that we do, to interrogate some of the norms that dominate our Christian practice, and to maybe remake them anew in interesting ways. And so um, I, I got a sort of an initial sniff of that in my MA work, and my PhD work is an extension of that, um, is, is really to gather a group of people who are interested in a set of questions and concepts and get together and basically imaginatively play with what queer religiosity looks like if we can envision a world like a religiosity that isn't inherently homophobic and transphobic, right? If we if we strip those those um, 
predispositions away what remains and what can we imagine being possible. And so the the art, um, the art component of that is really connected to the ways in which language and our, our need to articulate our experience and our dreams in language often restricts us um, because we, we inherit our language, right? We're, we're really hesitant to create new ways of talking about ourselves. Um, it, hap- it happens. I, I would suggest that, that the, the sort of influx of non-binary, uh, the language of non-binary, the language of gender queer, and some of the explorations around those things are really an emergent vocabulary to describe a particular experience in the world. But, but that's rare. We don't do that very often. Um, and so the engagement in art making in my work is this invitation what Ernst Bloch calls anticipatory illumination, which is how do we sort of uh, make space for the unconscious subconscious <laughs> as we um, as we explore who we want to be or what we are, I guess. So I want to gather a group of people together who are interested in in Christianity, in queerness, in the Christian tradition, um, generally speaking, or the Christian chain of memory, as as we might talk about it, and uh, as well as notions of hope. I think hope is really central to religious practice, and and this notion of utopia, um, borrowed from uh, Jose Esteban Munoz and and Ernst Bloch, which is to say, how do we use what is absent in the now, which would be, what is absent, I would say, is a non-transphobic, non-homophobic religiosity to envision a future utopia where those things are not present and allow that future vision to empower our direction, to help us understand how we might move forward. It basically, it comes back to this place of saying, if we can't imagine it, how do we get there, right? And so how do we, how do we use this playful, imaginative exploration of queer religiosity to lay out a roadmap, really, of what it looks like to allow queer religious subjects to become? in the world, or to unbecome. I mean, the the sort of tentative title of this PhD work is unbecoming religious queers with the un in in a parenthetical, right? Because I think often we think about becoming as this positive motion, but I think it really depends on who you ask. Yeah, no, for me, there's, well, there's a lot of interesting threads there. And I could just on the, the, the hermeneutic way you've described the human position between past and future is something that really interests me. I'm teaching a course on Paul Ricoeur right now, where those are really the main issues that we deal with. But um, and you mentioned Ernst Bloch and, and the idea of utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I even think I caught a reference to uh, Daniel Hervieux-Leger's book, Religion as a Chain of Memory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this idea that uh, a living tradition is carrying forward a memory and is trying to be faithful to a memory mm-hmm. of future liberation and transformation and redemption. Yeah. Uh, utopia, uh, if you want to use that term. And so there's a relationship between the ideological or memorial elements of a tradition, mm-hmm. which if it's kept alive, open you to new, not new, a new future that's coming. Yeah. It doesn't come from the past or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm hearing a lot of resonances with that kind of way of thinking about it. The other thing, and then the second thread I thought was quite interesting um, uh, as an ally was I was thinking like when you said it with the, the, the story of say coming to a place of integration for a queer person in the church where they they're like, they're, they're they can integrate their sense of who they are sexually with who they are spiritually mm-hmm. 
it's just the beginning when you said yeah. it's just the beginning that, that I thought that was really interesting because you wanted to, you talk about the weight of always having to defend yourself yeah. and to, and, and your own legitimacy and your own, um, humanity. And when, uh, uh, if you're envisioning a time when you're just free of that and, a, and a, a religious future where those kinds of elements don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. where you're just free to be who you are, that would have implications for the, for the wider church, not just for the queer community, but, Absolutely. uh, that would be the time when the, the, the fruits of the spirit of the people in this community would truly be on offer and be, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, impact the, the wider church, no matter what your sexuality is, which I think is interesting too. So it's not just, you know, it's a way of saying, okay, I'm, I'm collecting this group of people with these experiences, but it's for the sake of this future vision when these kinds of discriminations or these kinds of barriers or walls are, are, aren't, aren't up anymore. Yeah, so I, I can go in two directions. One is towards the recent synod decision, which I'll come back to in a second. But the the other one is to say two of the implications I see of this work. One, I think spending time investigating, exploring, creating space for LGBTQ Christians, who in the eyes of of the public or or a sort of general um, view would be living a paradoxical existence, where these two polarizing ideological forces that exist in the world right now are coming to a head, right? So we've got the sort of in the, in the current milieu, right? We've got this like religious right discourse going on and then sort of a pro- progressive leftist discourse. Um, and we've got these, these sort of figures that exist <laughs> in political discourse. And we've got this group of people who, whose everyday lived experience is a meeting point of these ideologies and discourses. Who better? to spend time talking to, to gain insight into how we might navigate ideological polarization than them, right? Like who better to sit down with and discuss what it looks like to disagree well, uh, what it looks like to, to gather indifference and, and have dignified conversation? Who better to look to than than queer Christians to foreground incredibly personal, vulnerable, and loaded discussions and look for grace, understanding, and compassion. I mean, you've already got the LGBTQ umbrella, which is a panoply of lived experiences that has somehow managed to create a unity, right? <laughs> Sometimes a disunity, but 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 politically a unity that has encompassed this commitment to holding one another up in its best iteration, right? And so I, I think queer Christians have, or queer religious people, generally speaking, this iteration of the project is focused on Christians, but queer religious people generally have an incredible gift to offer us as we find ourselves in an incredibly politically polarized time. And then secondly, another contribution this project has is to return to the social utility of hope. Because I think one of the questions at the heart of my research is really to say, and, and I try to say this whenever I talk about my work, and it's really important, is, that, is to say that the, the appropriate and proportionate LGBTQ response to Christianity to religion generally, and specifically in this case to the Christian Reformed Church, is rage and grief. And no one should ever quote me in saying that that is not the appropriate response to to our lived experience. Just because I study the folks that choose to stay does not mean that I don't think that leaving is the right choice for those individuals, right? My question is why on earth would LGBTQ people choose to continue involving the biblical narrative, life and ministry of Jesus in their lives after the way that they're treated in their church communities. 
like why why continue to invest or to own the ways in which our stories are rooted in this Christian chain of memory? Like why why claim that home? Why not abandon that home and say and grieve that obviously, but move on? And and I'm not sure there's one answer to that question, um, but I think that one of the answers is is hope. Is is what hope does secular atheist or agnostic life offer? <laughs> and I would I would love to engage in discussion with some people in those areas about what that looks like. But for me, I find um, particularly capitalist, patriarchal, heterosexist iterations of that secular <laughs> life to be hopeless, quite hopeless. And part of the reason why I continue to pursue and to own my own home within the Christian chain of memory is because of the, the role that it plays in giving me hope. And I think hope is, is central to flourishing. Right. Yeah. No, I just think that's really uh, beautifully said. Um, and yeah, we, we will go into the CRCNA's Human Sexuality Report in a sec. You made me think of something I read. Uh, I think Thomas Merton once said this, but he talked about people. Um, some people need to be atheists to protect something sacred in themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people need to be religious in order to do the same. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't have the quote exactly right. But uh, when I think of people, like when you said, you know, rage and grief are exactly the right responses to what's taking place in the Christian Reformed Church right now, if you're in in the queer community, and that some people may need to leave not just the CRC, but their faith for a while to protect that sacred part of themselves, that part of their humanity where they image God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to make that comment. But when it comes to the, the CRC and A's HSR report, like, I kind of will put my cards on the table because I kind of, ha- I have a question for you about this. But you talked uh, in your previous answer a lot about who better to talk to about uh, where these polarized positions, uh, who, who has a better perspective on them than people who live that tension in their in their very person, right? And uh, and that's what I think one of, for me one of the main disappointments was when the, when they started this uh, task force or group to compose this report and they did travel around and talk to people. I don't think they really set out to intentionally hear the kind of stories that they needed it to hear in order to come up with a really Christian uh, understanding of human sexuality. Mm-hmm. So you, you've written in Broadview Magazine uh, about the impact that the adoption of this report yeah. with confessional status right, has had on you personally and the impact it will have on LGBTQ plus people growing up in the CRCNA. But um, just maybe you could offer your own personal impression of the report and including the process that the, that the CRCNA engaged in developing it. Yeah, I think this this is communicated in the Broadview article, I hope, that my initial reaction, probably because in some way of my own distance from the denomination now, was one of unsurprise um, and exhaustion. <laughs> um, in that, because I... Yeah, because because I think that this is an old conversation, <laughs> that the conversation needs to actually move forward from here in some way. I get exhausted when we continuously come back to the same conversation. The only reason why I contributed to, to Broadview and why I, I want to continue to give this energy is because of the LGBTQ people that are still a part of the Christian Reformed Church and because of the, the closeted kid in the pew who is overhearing these conversations and is being impacted day, day in and day out by this discourse. So, so that, that's why I'm, I'm continuing to participate in this. F- from my perspective, bad fruit dies on the vine. So like if the Christian Reformed Church 
continues in this direction, I don't think it will be the church in the world. I'm not sure it it, it is being the church in the world in its current iteration. Um, I uh, would much rather engage with queer Christians who are interested in exploring being relevant in, in our current cultural, political, and social landscape. That said, uh, in terms of the process itself, I think the, the human sexuality report uh, was doomed to fail from the get because, um, and I do see it as a failure, because it required the committee members to adhere to the CRC's biblical view on marriage and same-sex relationships. Like that's the language, adhere to the CRC biblical view on marriage and same-sex relationships. So one, it already suggested that the biblical view was biblical. <laughs> And two, uh, it required people to already agree with that. So there was no, there was no, unless somehow the interviews that they had changed someone's mind, there was no way that this was going to result differently than it, than it did, right? Um, and two, I mean, I was looking at some of the documentation and even just the use of same-sex attracted person as being one of the committee members and same-sex attraction language. Um, I understand why it's used, but that language for most LGBTQ Christians is associated with uh, ex-gay ministry, right? Like if you are not even willing to use someone's identification as gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, pansexual, intersex, ho however that ends up being, and talk to the particularities of, a, of an individual, you're already missing the conversation. So that that also indicates to me an ignorance in regards to the lived experience of LGBTQ people in North America and our long and difficult and violent history with, with the church, generally speaking, not necessarily the Christian Reformed Church. I don't think many Christian Reformed ex-gay ministries exist anymore, but they have in the past um, and, and their harm continues. To today, so that's uh, those are two two things um, about the process. In terms of like speaking with LGBTQ people, I'm of two minds about this. One, I think the sort of nothing um, about us without us practice is really wise um, and important. And um, at the same time, I know that there was another report that was forwarded in 2016 that never actually got tabled. That was led by uh, Dr. Wendy Vanderwall Gritter, and it was never discussed at Synod. And that included discussion with LGBTQ people about their experiences in the church. From what I can tell from this process, they also interviewed a series of LGBTQ people. And there is a huge part of me that wants to say, how dare you continuously ask for the emotional, spiritual, and other kinds of labor from LGBTQ people and repeatedly ignore, diminish, and silence their calls for justice within the church. How dare you spend time asking them to be vulnerable for you and then call them disordered? How dare you? So I think at this point, in terms of how the Christian Reformed Church moves forward, I would suggest that there is a wealth of story and information available to them without further subjecting LGBTQ people in the church to their own scrutiny and investigation. That being said, if LGBTQ people in the Christian Reformed Church want to share their stories with the leadership that are with them, I would never stand in their way. But I think that it, it is important that we recognize the harm that is done by continuously asking these people to be vulnerable about their lived experiences and then diminishing those experiences. It is not a helpful practice. <laughs> So I'm of two minds about that in terms of the, the centering of LGBTQ voices and the way that that's been dealt with historically. And I think trust has been lost. 
Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting too because basically the, the the CRC's position that you're referring to is rooted in a report that was drafted in 1973, and um, one of the interesting historical details I find about that is that report was published I think two or three months, less than a year, before homosexuality was removed from the DSM four manual of uh, psychological disorders. Yeah. And uh, so, so even when they were writing at the time, the secular psychological community was in the process of not seeing this as a disordered form of being human or whatever, right? But, yeah. the, but the CRC has never, um, and they also said, we're not going to reopen scripture, which I, that's to me where I think, especially for Christian Reformed people, that's where the conversation needs to happen. They, I think, uh, well, I know, I'm going to get into the scriptural interpretation behind the non-affirming stance, but it's, um, you know, I think there's just so much, uh, so much impoverished about it, just in terms of its general hermeneutical approach to reading scripture, but also to its, uh, lack of understanding our own freedom with respect to scripture, right? Which the scripture itself bears witness to of the community of faith saying, hey, we're in a different time. This is a new situation. What is this being faithful demand of us? I mean, maybe we need to change. Right. So, you know, and there's other examples of um, in Isaiah of going against Deuteronomic uh, purity laws in the temple and things like that and changing their minds, right? So this idea that we're free to struggle in the spirit and in faith to change a past practice when we hear these stories and these calls for justice and compassion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think going back to, to sort of the contribution that Sylvia and Celia Kiesman and Brian Walsh have made for me, I think, you know, this general, and I think it's Martin Luther King that, that had the phrase that was something along the lines of sort of the, the overarching leaning of the universe is towards justice. And I think that that resonates with the biblical narrative. If we look at the biblical narrative as a whole, it is a continued movement towards inclusion um, to broadening out <laughs> who can be welcomed into the body of Christ. Very, very seldom is there a, a restriction of what that actually involves, right? And these these really radical moves on the part of the early church and of Jesus to, um, you know, include women and eunuchs and uncircumcised people and uh, all of these various communities that were emerging um, and I think one of the one of one of the griefs that I have, and I, and I perhaps don't know enough about this history to 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 say it, but from my perspective and my limit limited knowledge of Christian Reform synodical history, would be to say that there was precedent for a different way of yeah. moving through this in regards to women in ministry. Mm -hmm. I mean, my my understanding of of the Christian Reform Church's movement through that debate was to come to a place of saying that scripture didn't have enough at its disposal to land on a definitely not a confessional place but even a, a pastoral guidance place in relation to women in ministry and in leadership in the church and and the christian reformed church landed in that place and I would say has rightly, through the discernment of allowing women in ministry through the history of the Christian Reformed Church, come to realize that that is an important, uh, not even an important, a vital aspect of of the Christian Reformed Church's heart. Yeah, that the, the church denied itself the gifts of half of its membership for so long. Like exactly. That. Yeah. But because you know, part of our part of the position is that I really think the. Uh, 
the uh, the CRC has just really um, run roughshod over church order, and um, mm-hmm. and they're basically just trying to bat down the hatches and police dissent and disagreement that could have allowed for local option. I mean, absolutely, the women in office thing did not impose that on all churches. If you were a conservative church that didn't right. feel that was right, you could stay with your conscience on that issue and all that kind of thing. Well, and in reading and rereading the, I mean, I haven't read the full report. I've read the summary several times, the the executive summary, and in reading through that, it's quite clear to me that there's so many aspects of this conversation that are just totally unacknowledged on top of the fact that continuously this summary lumps homosexuality in with bestiality and various other uh, practices that could not be further from a loving relationship between two people who identify as the same gender, right? Like I just, it is baffling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talked a lot about the CRC's HSR report and what it stands for and how how it uh, affects people. And maybe we can end up on a different note. Like um, this is an issue that people that people are divided and polarized around. So I'm kind of a prag- pragmatist in some ways, and I, I kind of think, well, you know, there's people who just won't be convinced. But are there still ways even to like you, you mentioned the phrase disagreeing well? Um, are there ways we can still live together in community and be a blessing to each other? Yeah. It's obviously, I think we both, you and I both agree, it's not down the road of the human sexuality report that mm. that kind of community can be built. But maybe there, we could talk about a more hopeful model for people to live together, even in their disagreement, and to still love each other. And- yeah, I mean, I think uh, speaking to both queer people in the church who have left the church and allies who are lamenting this decision, I simultaneously want to acknowledge the deep and profound grief that is homebreaking and that 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 is part of what is happening here and also from my own journey to offer the same practice that i took up when i was at calvin college which is to say that god is bigger than uh, these moments (laughs) and that the church is bigger than these moments and that we need to invest in these communities because they have they carry home and history for us and also if this conversation does not lean towards justice, maybe I'll say in the long run, um, that the church will continue, the church as a whole. I think um, our sort of Protestant uh, denominational homemaking has done a disservice to us in some ways in our tendency to believe that our denomination is the entirety of the church, um, which is not true. And we would do well to open our hearts, our homes, and our communities beyond um, denominational lines and find resonance and solidarity across uh, denominational conversations around these issues, um, because we're not the only ones going through this process, and we're not the only ones struggling with this conversation. And and I guess in terms of uh, disagreeing well, generous space had a had a profoundly important model that it used, um, which was to energize discussions with values. So for generous space, we'll see if I can remember them. It was humility, hospitality, mutuality, and justice. Uh, and these values allowed us to come to the conversation in the in the right posture and to ask, you know, might I be wrong to ask whether my opinion and the ways that I'm voicing my opinion are doing others harm and whether all voices are are welcome to participate. You know, these are, this is some of the insight of um, Wendy Vanderwall Gritter in how to explore these discussions. And Generous Space had a, a complex end that we won't discuss here, but the 
practice that was under underway in that community was incredibly important and I think needs to be taken up in different ways. I think one of the things that's really important to contextualize these conversations with is to say, we can disagree well, but as soon as someone's humanity is being diminished, conversation is no longer possible. So a starting place is certainly to come to the table with a posture of respect and dignity of the other. And too often, whether it's LGBTQ issues, whether it's uh, in the US, whether it's Democrat, Republican, we have a tendency to uh, dehumanize the other before we begin to disagree. But that, I mean, that's some of some of my thoughts. I think um, we're afraid to allow the church to change. We want it to stay the same. We we want to be comfortable. And and I would suggest that uh, these gatekeeping conversations or these boundary making conversations, like the Human Sexuality Report, indicate a dying iteration of church. Um, that doesn't mean that the church is done, but it does mean that we need a radical reimagination of what church is that uh, requires practice and how to have difficult conversations amongst difference um, with one another. That's it for our show this week. We look forward to getting back into the swing of things soon, and we're grateful to Eric for joining us and sharing his story and insights. If you'd like to see more of Eric's research and projects, you can visit his website at www.ericvangiesen.com. You can also check out the original Queerly Faithful Zine, which he mentioned in this episode, and which contains the poem Eric read, among many other creative contributions, at www.queerlyfaithfulpress.ca. You can also find the article mentioned in this episode, published this past June by searching for Eric's name on Broadview Magazine's website at www.broadview.org. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on www.icscanada.edu. And if anything from today's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find ICS on Twitter as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.